0: If you turn with me to the passage in which today's teaching is based, it comes from Matthew chapter 18, and I'll be reading from verses 21 through 35. Famous passage. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king But when the servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown in prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went out and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. From your heart. This is God's word. The end of the narrative there's this man and he's not just thrown in jail but he's turned over and and the word that's used is he's tortured. And Jesus says in verse 35, "This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart." Now, that's a hard saying. If you've been to metro for a while, the reasonable thing that you'd ask is, "Wait a second, I thought that salvation Uh, Wasn't supposed to depend on uh, your obedience. And you're right. You're absolutely right. But it doesn't mean that obedience doesn't exist. Jesus here is not talking about the requirement of salvation, he's talking about the fruit of salvation. Fruit reveals that there's health in a plant, in a tree, fruit reveals that there's life. So Jesus isn't saying, if you forgive, you're going to go to heaven, but if you don't forgive, you're going to go to hell. That's not what he's actually saying. What he's actually saying is, if you remain angry, if you remain malicious towards others, and you don't have an open heart towards somebody who actually needs mercy, that reveals you've never had an open heart to me. A forgiving heart is a fruit of the gospel. So, your ability to really forgive somebody is one of the biggest indications that your life has shifted from a cognitive ascent, a cognitive knowledge of the gospel, to real gospel transformation. The Apostle Paul says, love is patient. That word patient in Greek is long-suffering. So there's three things we're gonna look at right now: the importance of forgiveness, how to forgive and the power uh, to forgive. The importance of forgiveness. How do you forgive someone? How do you actually do it? And uh, what's the power? Where's the power that we get to actually forgive somebody? First, we're gonna look at the importance of forgiveness. This parable, a parable is a story and there's components of the story. There's parts of the story or the narrative that are that were said, that were told, and were intended to shock people who are listening in that time, in their day, while they offer truths that are applicable in our day. And so, and there are lots of shocking parts of of this narrative but one of them because and it's the key to getting this parable is to understand the magnitude of the debt that you see here in verse 24 here's a king and the king is settling accounts with his servants and in verse 24, one of those servants is brought to him who owes him 10,000 talents. Maybe it was through taxes that he was supposed to collect. Maybe he ran a region or maybe he ran a province or maybe he ran a country or multiple countries. Their job was to settle accounts with their master, with their king, and there was one who actually still had a debt that was incurred that where he owed 10,000 talents. Now, 10,000 talents is a subjective number. Some scholars will tell you that a common worker earned around one talent every sixteen years. it would take sixteen years to save one talent some Some scholars will tell you that um, that a person would own about or uh, earn about a, a one talent a year. so it's a subjective number we're not quite sure, but we would say if you just take if you just take um these numbers into account, one talent every 16 years. That's a minimum of 0.06 talents a year. Okay, that's that's a uh, that's not a lot, right? And if the common person, if the common worker, um, in that in our day makes about thirty thousand dollars a year, we're talking a minimum of three hundred million dollars to up to maybe $5 billion? That's what we're looking at? Look, some scholars, will actually tell you that it takes up to 500 years for a common worker to earn a talent in salary. Most likely, this person was entrusted with a lot. That's the whole point. The point is, he incurred a debt that was so large, there's not a single person that could repay it. It was a ridiculous sum of money. Either it was through mismanagement or maybe through corruption. The person lost an enormous amount of money or was not able to pay back, maybe embezzled, we don't know. But if you think about it, $300 million or even up to $5 billion or more, depending on how you look at the scale, it's any $300 million of any government's budget will impact the entire nation's economy. Something's going to get damaged. Some program wouldn't be run. And... All these funds in the ancient times belonged to the king. I mean, the king in in Jesus' day, his face was printed, you know, or uh, embossed on the actual gold of the treasury. It belonged to the king. Jesus uses this ridiculous amount of money to emphasize that there's no one person that can repay this type of debt. And yet, despite the loss, the king hasn't lost any composure. The servant here is begging in verse 26, be patient. He says, I will pay you back. That's a lie. There's no way that one person could repay that entire debt. But he says, be patient with me. The word that's used there in the Greek is makrothumiai. Makrothumiai. It's a compound word. It means long-tempered, long-suffering. That means that the person has a high melting point. What does that mean? We're going from a math lesson to a science lesson. Here's a science lesson, you have mercury. Mercury is a metal is a metal with the lowest melting point, at least in our world, it's the lowest melting point. That means that at room temperature, mercury completely liquefies, it runs all over the place. Tungsten is a metal with the highest melting point, or at least a very high melting point. That means that a tremendous amount of heat is needed before tungsten liquefies and falls apart. Here's a servant begging the king and basically what he's saying is please have a high melting point with me Have have a high melting point long-suffering long-tempered Please be long-tempered with me spiritual patience is That inner power to withstand an enormous amount of heat So that when circumstances arise you don't melt down and fall all over the place. You don't lose composure You don't lose your inner poise, you don't lose your joy, because those losses, those betrayals, those hurts, they don't own you, and so they don't make you, and they won't break you. Now, why is that important? It's because suffering is largely out of our control. If you've lived any certain amount of life, you'll know that suffering is not in your control. You don't have to go looking for suffering, but in order to be long-suffering, that's a decision you make. To be long-suffering is a choice you make, a choice that you make to bear pain, to bear betrayal, to bear hurt without falling apart. It's, a co- it's complex because on one hand, it's a choice, and yet on the other hand, these things are inevitable. Suffering is inevitable. Betrayals are inevitable. Hurt is, is inevitable. You're gonna fa- and, and, and suffering, long, to be long-suffering is to say that I'm not going to fall apart in this broken world where things are always falling apart around us. So unless you accept suffering, unless you accept hurt, you're going to fall apart every time it happens. And in a world where suffering is constant, there's no trait then, there's no quality, there's no no, uh, characteristic in your life that's going to be more important than to be patient, to be long-suffering. What does it mean to fall apart? If you think about it, if every time somebody hurts you, if every time somebody betrays you, you fall apart, that means that you lose yourself every time. You know why? It's because your identity, your, uh, your life, really, your joy is built around these relationships that you have. They're so important to you, they have become a part of you. And they not only become a part of you, they rule you. And so you desperately need a person's love. So when that person betrays you, it's enslaving. If you look at the text in verses 34 to 35, Jesus says, if you are unable to forgive, you are in prison. You are in torture. You are in hell. That's what he says. If if, if you're long-suffering, even if you're deeply hurt, you still have a life because you still have yourself. Your hopes are your identity, your joys, your delight, they're not not anchored into these relationships. And so they're not anchored into the betrayal. They're not anchored into hurt. You're not owned by these things. You still have a self. Now they say patience is a virtue, meaning that patience is very valuable. But here Jesus says it's not just valuable. It's not just a virtue. It's critical. It's life critical. It's the difference between utter freedom and utter slavery. That ability to forgive without losing your inner poise, so important, so critical. Now, critical. now, some of you are saying, well, that's not really a big problem for me. I get along with a lot of people, and when they are hurts, I'm pretty forgiving. You got to be careful. Hebrews chapter 13, the author warns you to take care lest you harbor a root of bitterness. What he's saying is that anger is like a root. Why? Let's say you look out in your yard, those of you in the city you don't have a yard, you have a garden, you look out in your garden, and uh, you see weeds. You say, i got to get rid of these weeds. What do you do? You get a weed whacker, and you basically just chop off, you lop off these weeds. Is that how you remove weeds? No, that's not how you do it, because the roots of those weeds are still there. And underneath, if you were able to take a microscope or something that's able to look into the ground, you would know that there's a very complex network that forms. So that even if you were to uproot one part, another part will spring up. Very, very difficult once something gets rooted into the garden, right? Once weeds get rooted. It's underground. It's subterranean. And it's strong. It's a network. It's a very cold and dark network down there. And the author of Hebrews says that before that root forms, you've got to watch out you got to be cautious. you got to take care. Anger is underground. You can readily admit when you're in anxiety. You can readily admit when you are in lust. But anger is difficult to see, and it's easy to minimize, and it's easy to hold on to. What the author of Hebrews says is, after a while, it holds on to you. It grips you, captivates you, entangles you. And once it takes root, It becomes this tangled network of vengeance, vengefulness, and bitterness, and darkness. Because you can go untouched for a while, and until you do something about it, it doesn't just go away. It might go dormant. It may be in remission, you may think, because circumstances have improved. Relationships have improved. But until you actually do something about that anger, unless there's a great act of forgiveness... That anger will twist you and contort you until it distorts your view of yourself, distorts your view of other people. It's going to tempt you to resent people, withdraw from people, walk away from people, misinterpret people, misinterpret even the smallest things, the the smallest sights. It's going to tempt you to dismiss people, even some of those people in your life that you need. Now, some of you are saying, well, look, You know, when you get into a conflict, you know, I'm over it. It's all good. I don't want to talk about it anymore. I'm done with it. Some of you go even further and say, I'm done with that person. But anger is not done with you. Anger gets in there, and it starts to twist you and shape you, make you skeptical and cynical, make you distrusting and biased. Look at the end of the parable. In verses 34 to 35, here is this king. And he's forgiving. The king is forgiving. He has every right in his justice to put this man away. This man stole from him, embezzled, mismanaged at the least. But this king is, a, is good and he's faithful. But then he orders torture. Does that sound good? Does that sound faithful? Why does he do it? It's Jesus' way of saying that if you don't learn to forgive, that anger is going to get in there. And even though in a way you're putting other people in prison because of by your judgment, your self-righteousness puts you in prison and it tortures you. And that root is going to eventually grow into a redwood. And It's a lot easier to uproot a root than it is to uproot an entire tree. Now you're never going to be free. Now you're completely entangled. It's suffocating you and choking you, and you're in torture. Now you're always hurting. You're always distrusting. You're always self-protecting. You're always apprehensive, always defensive, always bitter. Forgiveness is very important. It's why we need to do it. Now the second point is, how do you do it? How do you forgive somebody? There are three things that the king here does for the servant. And uh, this text gives us a road map in a way whenever we're hurt, whenever we feel wronged by somebody, one, the king sympathizes with the servant, two, he cancels his debt, and then lastly, he releases him, he sets him free, he, he completely lets him go. You see, the first thing he does is he sympathizes. In verse 27, the king was moved to pity he sympathized. That word means that he shared in the same suffering, sympathos, same suffering. He shared in the same uh, pathos as this person. He felt, another way to say that, he felt compassion toward the misery of the servant. Whenever somebody wrongs you, it's easy, in fact, it's natural to emphasize the differences between you and that person. I would never do that, you say. That person is a fool. I would never be like that. We mock and we laugh about how stupid this person is. Every little misstep we start to mock. But the Bible teaches that if you want to grow in long-suffering, if you want to really grow in forgiveness, you have to choose. It takes some work. You have to intentionally choose to emphasize the things that are common between the two of you. Now, Tim Keller, he says this, and it's so insightful. He says, Whenever somebody is hurt by someone, it's it, easy to make a caricature of that person. What's a caricature? A caricature is an image where, if you've ever seen like a caricature cartoon, it's an image where you take the worst feature of a person and you augment that feature to a point where that person is defined by that feature, uh, that, that feature in the cartoon. And Keller says that that that's what we do when we're hurt when we're betrayed by somebody, we, we reduce those people to how we've been hurt by them in a sense. So when someone lied to you, they're liars. When someone betrays you, they're betrayers. We reduce people uh, to essentially one dimension. You know, now they're defined by their lies, they're defined by their, uh, by their deeds, their misdeeds. Of course, when you lie, it's complex, we say. It's nuanced. We always like to see ourselves uh, with a three-dimensional perspective. You know, I'm not that bad. I mean, you see, it's very complicated, we say, while we love to see other people in one dimension. We love to see ourselves as whole while we see other people in a very reductionistic fashion. And here's why. It's because deep inside, there's a struggle, there's a desire to be accepted and to be acceptable. And so we're very protective of the things that make us unacceptable. And so there's this desperate need to always have to justify yourself, even if you've done something wrong, to always justify why you're doing it. And so we're constantly comparing ourselves. It's one of the best ways to justify yourself is to look at somebody who hurt you, compare yourself with that person and say, I would never do that. Because it's a way of feeling a greater sense of worth about ourselves. You know, you've got to salvage something. It's almost compensatory to the damage that you, you've experienced. But if you don't want to be ruled by your anger, you need to sympathize. You need to have compassion. It's easy to say, well, he or she is, is fallible. They're confused. There's a mixture of good and bad in that person, right? There's a mixture of good and bad. There's uh, qualities. That person's weak. But what you can also say is, but I'm also fallible. I'm also confused at times. There's a mixture of good and bad in me. I'm very weak. The Bible teaches that we're all fallen people, but we can be redeemed. We're all broken people, but we can be healed. We're all sinners, but we can also be children, children of God. We can sympathize. Secondly, in verse 27, the king cancels the servant's debt. In other words, he didn't do what he could, which is to take revenge. He didn't take revenge. He didn't make that servant pay back the debt. Now, what does that mean? What it doesn't mean is that if somebody wrongs you in a way that requires justice, if somebody wrongs you in a way that requires some sort of action, legal action, that you just let that person go. That's not what it means. Remember, God is a just God. But what it does mean is this. If somebody damages their relationship with you, in a sense, what happens is there's a sense that that person owes you a debt. Like, if you've been betrayed, somebody's got to pay, we say. Time by itself will not heal some hurts. It may cover up some hurts. It may help to bury some of those hurts. But the roots, that's where the roots start to form the anger starts to form and it's still there and you gotta remember it's twisting you. It's twisting you and contorting you. And there's all sorts of ways to make people pay back the debt that they owe you in their betrayal. That's what revenge is. There's upfront retaliation. You can confront the person, you can fight the person, you can, you can advance towards the person, you can insult that person. Or there's also behind the back retaliation, there's gossip, there's, you know, we can try to murder their reputation. You're sincerely cons- uh, uh, committing murder there, right? You can slander against that person. Some people say, well, I, I just, I don't do any of those things. I'm not really a violent person. I just write them off. But think about what you're doing is you're cutting off access. Withdrawal is another way to make another person pay. We like to say, you know, that person they're really low. I don't deal with people like that. I'm done with them. They're beneath me. And it hurts them... And it feels good when you walk away. It feels good when you walk away. Why? Because the more you see a person hurt, whether it's up front or behind their backs or with, through withdrawal, the more you see that person hurt, in a sense, they're paying down that debt that they owe. And you feel, you think to yourself, after a while, I'm going to be made whole again. After a while, the anger starts to go away. And it's not true. I mean, you're going to feel better for a little while, but that anger and that hate, it's going to get in. And it's going to start rooting itself. And now it's starting to entangle you. And after some time, it starts to control you. Now you slowly start to take on the likeness of that other person's sin. You start to take on the likeness of that other person's evil. That evil starts to pass into you until now there's a a network, a tangled network of self-absorption and self-righteousness and self-justification for anything that you do. You see that? That's all that's left. There's no you left. You've lost yourself. That's the darkness. In the darkness, we're blind. You've lost yourself. There's isolation. There's suffering. And sadly, when it gets to a certain point, a lot of us would rather just stay there. It actually almost feels good. We're almost addicted to that. Why? Because every step, you know, every step that you take towards forgiveness actually hurts. You're so far, you're so much further down and maybe underground. That You'd rather stay in that darkness because it hurts to get out there. You ever been in a movie theater, in a matinee show in the afternoon on a sunny day? You go to the movie, it's dark. The entire time, after two hours, you come out. What happens? It hurts. It hurts to step out into the light. You don't want that kind of pain. You'd rather just run back in where it's dark. How do you tell if you're headed there? How do you tell if you're unforgiving? There's several things. Here's some warning signs. One, people can't speak into you. People are afraid to speak into you. Two, You're lonely. When we're lonely, we do crazy things. Three, there's a darkness, a cloud in your life, a hopelessness, a cynicism. What's happening is the world is starting to cave in around you. You're starting to get swallowed up by the roots, and it's dragging you in. One of my favorite books is uh, William Shakespeare's Hamlet, if you've ever read Hamlet, I'm sure many of you have read it, here's this evil that passes into Hamlet. He's been betrayed. In fact, his father was betrayed. He was murdered by his uncle. And that's Hamlet's anger. That's the root of his anger. That evil that passed into Hamlet, now slowly, the whole book, and that's Shakespeare's theme is that the evil never just stays contained in one person, but it starts to pass into other people as well, until everybody is consumed. So here's Hamlet. He he looks crazy and he's scheming and he's impulsive. And then one by one you see the death of Polonius, the death of Laertes, the death of Ophelia. Ophelia was his love. The death of Gertrude, who was his mom, Rosencrantz and Gilderstern, who were his friends, and then eventually the king, and eventually ultimately himself. That's the hell. That's the prison. That tangled network of roots of hate and evil twisting you until it consumes you completely. But in this text, here we have a king. Look at the grace of this king. Look at the compassion of this king. He cancels the debt. The debt, it doesn't just go away. By letting this guy go, by canceling the debt, now he's got a loss. Now he's got a big, big red negative mark on his ledger. The debt doesn't go away. The loss doesn't go away. So in order to forgive this servant, the king has to eat that cost. In other words, he has to make up for that debt. What does that mean? For us, what does that mean? Every time that you have the opportunity to rub their nose in it, But that instant gratification that you feel when you rub it in their face, when you remind them of what they did, or behind their backs you start to talk again about what they did, every time you have the opportunity to do that, you don't. Every time you have the opportunity to do something that's going to hurt that person, you don't. Every time you have the opportunity to wish that person pain, you don't. Every single time that you have the opportunity to, to really destroy or ruin that person, you don't. You know when it's the hardest to do that? It's when you see them doing well. Like you can get by when there's mutual suffering, but when you start to see them doing well, oh, you want them to suffer. You want them to suffer. It's costly not to take revenge because that means you are paying the price. And if you make them pay, the anger gets in, it ruins you anyway. It's going to ruin you anyway, but if you refuse to take revenge, it's going to hurt. It's going to hurt for a while maybe, but slowly over time, the malice dies. That's what Jesus is saying. Slowly over time, if you eat the dead, if you pay that anger down by refusing to hurt that person, by refusing to wish that person hurt, the anger will die. Now, it depends on the scale of hurt. Right, so I don't want to minimize the amount of hurt some people endure. It may take some people weeks. It may take some people years. It may take some people decades. It's why we call it long-suffering. Forgiveness is long-suffering. But eventually, that anger will go down because you paid it down. And when you pay it down, you're free. You still have a self. You still have an identity. You still have a life. And when you sympathize with a sinner, when you sympathize with a betrayer, and when you cancel that person's debt, then you can do the third thing. Verse 27, the king lets him go. What he's saying is I'm not going to find ways to bring you back into the mess. I'm not going to try to entangle you by reminding you of what you've done, by reminding you of the debt you owe, by, by making, finding new ways to make you pay me back. That's not what he does. He sets him free. In verse twenty-eight, that servant is free. But that servant who's free, what happens is once he's let go, he sees somebody who owes a much smaller amount, a hundred denarius. And and you know, that's like several thousand dollars. If you if you actually really do the math, it's it's again there's a range, it's a subjective number, but it's probably close to you know, anywhere eight to ten thousand dollars. It's payable. It's it's not a small amount of money, but it's payable. And he doesn't say in this case, just as he, remember, this person was just released. He doesn't say, you know, you owe me, you better pay up. The text says he grabbed him and began to choke him. Now, that's over the top ridiculous. And that's the point. The listener would have been completely shocked by this punchline and what has happened the listener would have been completely shocked by the grace of the king what king would do that but they would have been even more shocked by this evil servant here's a man who was just released of his debt a debt that he could never pay and yet he's violent and he's abusive he's imbalanced he's still in prison I'm sure he's found ways to justify it. I'm sure in his mind it was justifiable. We tend to say, look, it's not about forgiveness. This is about justice. This person needs to learn. But think about this. First of all, you can forgive somebody and still seek justice. But if you don't forgive them, I'm going to submit to you, you will never get justice. Why? Because if you keep pursuing justice without forgiving somebody, if you keep pursuing justice without setting somebody free, You're gonna develop a kind of bloodthirst. And you're never gonna be satisfied. You're never, especially if it happens again, you're never gonna be satisfied, and you're never gonna get then the justice that you're actually looking for. See, the gospel is very balanced. It's so balanced. On one hand, it says, Don't take vengeance. But on the other hand, it says, I don't want you to dismiss the person either. God wants you to pursue that person, God wants you to confront that person but not to destroy that person to make peace. Who can do this? Where do you get the power to do this? How'd the king do it? I mean, this story is so strange. The average listener in Jesus' day hearing the story would say, Look, this is ridiculous. There's no king like this. There's no king... This kind of sympathy. There's no king that would will be willing to sacrifice his own wealth, sacrifice the, the health of his kingdom for this betrayer. But there is. There is a king. And it's not in this fictional story. This king is real. Truth is sometimes greater, stranger than fiction. Here's a king who had pity on a servant. That phrase, to have pity, to sympathize, that phrase in Greek is used 11 times in the New Testament. And in all those cases, except for one, because it was actually in reference within a parable, within a story, another fictional story, every one of those references was used to describe Jesus. Jesus was moved to compassion. Jesus looked at this person and had compassion. Jesus saw that person and had pity on that person. Here's a servant who puts himself in the place of a king. Here's a low person elevating himself to the place of a king and chokes the person. Chokes the person who owes a debt to him. That's the evil. In fact, that's sin. That's what sin is. Jesus is saying, when you don't forgive, that's us. Then how can we be truly forgiving? You have to look and behold the beauty of the king who actually became a servant. Jesus looked at us with pity he looked at us with compassion, he sympathized. We who betrayed him, we who rebelled against him, we who cost him his glory, stole his glory from him and yet Jesus Christ, the king, the king of the universe, he came down not to choke us because of our sin debt, but to be choked, not to arrest us but to be arrested not to torture us but to be tortured all the way to the cross and on the cross jesus suffered the ultimate torture the ultimate pain in fact on the cross he was choking do you know that when you're crucified on the cross you're actually suffocating more than the dying of blood loss you're actually dying of suffocation he's he's struggling to breathe and that's just physical because in a sense on the cross, when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, as the wrath of God, the justice of God, which is appropriate on, against his people, was pouring out on him, the ultimate injustice. So in a sense, there were two injustices that Jesus endured. One was our sin and our betrayal. And then secondly, it was the wrath of God that we deserve placed on him. And here he is on the cross, suffering hell, suffering complete separation from God. He says, I am forsaken, losing the access. God completely withdrawing from him. Suffering the punishment, the ultimate punishment. He's saying, I'm in the ultimate prison as a penalty of the debts of my people. Do you know his last words? It, are, it was telestai, die. To tell us that. You know what that is? It's a transactional financial term that means it is finished, the debt is paid. Jesus Christ was arrested so that you could be set free, Jesus Christ was tortured and suffered and paid the debt of sin so that your debt could be fully canceled. He had pity. He's, he not only suffered the same suffering, he not only shared in our suffering in, a, in an emotional way, in a compassionate way, he experienced it. In fact, he took it on our behalf so that we could be reconciled to the Father. Jesus Christ, the King of the universe, came and paid the infinite debt of sin. Who could pay that debt? Jesus Christ paid. He paid the debt so that you could be set free. Now think about this the Father, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity being ripped apart in a legal sense, in a positional sense on the cross, in a forensic sense on the cross because of our sin. And that pain and the cost of that pain, it was palpable. It was the cross that's visible. Every time you look at the cross, you see the debt being paid. You see your sin and you see your forgiveness. You have family brokenness. Is there relational brokenness in your life? Have you been betrayed or abandoned or rejected by your friends, people that you trusted? The gospel the gospel can melt your heart and keep you poised and keep you self-examining. Instead of examining other people's sin, you start to examine yourself. Is there anything that I did to lead to this? What is my contribution to this? And you can start to own it. You can get very, do you know that you start to own it when you get specific about it? And once you behold the beauty of Jesus paying down your debt, the process of self-examination will start to take hold, and then you start to develop the commonalities. There's the sympathy. It begins. Peter, going all the way to the beginning of this text, verse 21, asks Jesus, how many times do I forgive? Up to seven times. Seven is the perfect number. He see, essentially, you want us to forgive perfectly, right? And Jesus says, not just seven. Seventy-seven. I want you to go beyond that. You have the power. You have an abundant power in you by Jesus' spirit. You know why? Because Jesus looked at us seven times, 77 times, 777 billion times, an infinite number of times. Jesus Christ forgave. That's when the sympathy takes hold. You were given that kind of power by God's spirit in union with Christ to forgive place your story place your betrayal place your hurt place maybe you are the betrayer maybe you are the one who hurt place that story into the story of the gospel and let that set you free then you will still have a life you're going to be free indeed let's pray